Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's great to have my friend Jeff Kinley back on the program to let you know a little bit about Jeff. He is the lead, I guess you would say, of God's Vintage Truth. He's an author of almost 40 books and counting. He speaks across America, motivating believers to live for Christ and prepare for his soon coming. A topic that, you know, Jeff, in the 70s, a lot of us were enamored with end times, and it seems to have kind of lost its panache. We're not as we're not as intrigued by what's going to happen in the future. But anyway, in several of his books he's written, the current one we're going to be talking about today, God's Grand Finale. So great title and great copy, so we're going to be jumping into that. But we've also had Jeff on the program with the Prophecy Pros, and that's been a fun broadcast. A lot of our people have come back to again and again and talked about that. But let me, let me back up before we jump into this topic. What got you into end times thinking and future thinking when, again, it's it's not what it used to be as far as an interest level for people? Yeah, well, I was a pastor for many years, for some 35 years. And of course, through that, as a pastor, you well know, you, you teach Genesis to Revelation, you you stumble on passages and stuff, and you go, wow, this is, this is really interesting. But uh, I'd written a lot of books, uh, started out writing books for young people, and then kind of transitioned to more Christian life and biographies and stuff like that. But I wrote a book in 2014, Michael, called As It Was in the Days of Noah. And boy, that came out the same time as that Russell Crowe movie. A great um, movie. By the similar name. And of course, they, you know, Holly... Yeah, 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 right. A swing and a miss, right? I like the Nephilim, tends though. I thought to that just was say, clever. Yeah, I don't like the way the Bible says it. Let's make up my own story here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a great boat. I mean, you know, the flood itself was pretty dramatic. But, yeah, so I wrote that book, and it soared mm. straight to number one. And and so that that kind of got me thinking, well, wait a minute, this is striking a chord in the body of Christ. And lo and behold, every book that I've written since then pretty much has been about discerning the times, Bible prophecy, that type of thing. And and there is starting, we're starting to see a real resurgence in that. Uh, to your question yep. earlier, I think that after Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth came out, there was a huge explosion of interest in Bible prophecy kind of coming off the 60s and that kind of thing. But people kind of looked around and figured out, wait a minute, it didn't happen. So maybe we're not in the right time. And yet the events and the things that are going on globally now kind of make people are making people think, wow, maybe we are getting close to some of these signs being prophetically fulfilled. So I can't write them fast enough. I mean, uh, the Lord is just really blessing. It was interesting when you and I were at Dallas, of course, John Walford and Pentecost mm-hmm. were kind of national treasures. And these prophecy conferences, uh, Tim LaHaye, and other, you couldn't get in them. And today, you're getting a great you know, response to your writing and ministry, but it's just interesting how these trends come and go. And one of the mm-hmm. discussions I've had over the years is this idea of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine of imminency is hard one to live on the edge. That you know, he, it may be morning, it may be noon, you know, it may be evening, he's yeah. coming soon. But it's hard mm-hmm. to keep living like this could be the day. And then you have the overcompensators, like uh, it was the guy Edgar, the you know, 88 reasons for the rapture in 88, different right. attempts to, to codify and numerologists, and this is going to be, you know, when the moon is in the seventh stars, with you know, all that. <laughs> <laughs> Age so, of Aquarius. <laughs> yeah, so you have all this nonsense out there, but at the same yeah. time, how does, and, and we'll get to your book in a minute, believe me, but how does this doctrine of eminency work for Jeff? How do you live faithfully knowing this could be the day, but life's daily and Mm -hmm. the mortgage has got to be paid and the kids have got to be fed and schooled and 
you know, sports and et cetera. You know, you're right. We, we studied under some of the giants of the faith under people like John Walvard and Pentecost, Stan Toussaint, some of those yeah. great guys. And, and, and they really, I think the, the key is that they really grounded people like you and me in the Word of God. Our root system went very, very deep. And that kind of keeps us from doing what you said, is that, you know, people trying to be uh, sensationalist or, or predicting dates mm-hmm. and, you know, watching all these things and trying to make a date setting. And of course, that's, that's ridiculous. But yeah, the, the idea of the imminency of the return of Christ at the rapture, I'd say two things. Number one is that, you know, you look at the New Testament and you see all throughout the New Testament, this spirit of expectancy. The early church seemed to think that Jesus was going to come back at any time, and Paul wrote to that effect, eagerly awaiting the return of our Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven, from mm-hmm. which we eagerly await a Savior. So that whole spirit was there, the whole Maranatha, O Lord, come. Yeah. But I love what Martin Luther said. He said, look, if I, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree today, yeah. meaning that, you know what, that I may see that tree grow into adulthood, into full maturity, because I don't know when he's going to come back. But I want my heart to be ready. And I think Jesus uh, very appropriately related that whole scene, the whole rapture scene in John 14, 1 through 3, to this idea of a wedding motif that the Jewish groom would go away and he would build a place at his father's house. But the bride-to-be never knew the exact day that he would come and snatch her up and take her away to the father's house. But she did have an idea of the season. She just didn't know the day. And so I think what it creates in us, without being anxious, without being you know overly concerned, God wants us to live each day with the gift of that day. And we're not promised tomorrow. Even if the rapture doesn't happen, we're still not promised tomorrow. So there's still kind of that spirit of, you know, I have to be intentional about every day living for the Lord and, and enjoy every gift and every day God's given us. It would seem, and again, anecdotal, experiential, so cautious observation that I would say younger believers aren't that interested in eschatology in times and even sort of a softening of theology standpoints on pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, does it really matter, shrug your shoulders, even the raptures somewhat, huh, you know. And um, what's your diagnostic on that? Is that something you see, or, or do you have any indicators as to why, if that observation is yeah. accurate? Yeah, I think one thing that happened was early on in this sort of prophecy explosion, a generation really latched onto it. And they just kind of grew old with the topic, mm. <laughs> you know? And so these conferences that would happen, I would go and speak at these conferences, you know, 10 years ago, and I would just see nothing but white hair out there. Mm. And I, and sometimes I would ask them, I said, where, where are the younger, where are even the middle-aged folks at these things? But thankfully, what we're seeing now is it's starting to really trend downward huh. demographically. And we're seeing young moms, we're seeing little children, you know, come with their parents. I spoke at a camp in California last week, over close to 200 kids, and they wanted to know about Bible prophecy. So we spent two hours just answering questions about prophecy. So listeners on my podcasts, on the TV shows, that type of thing, we are seeing a very hopeful rejuvenation, if you will, in a younger demographic. So that's good news. Well, let's talk about your newest book, God's Grand Finale, Wrath, Grace, and Glory in Earth's Last Days. And our great friend and scholar, March Hitchcock, wrote your foreword, which he's doing a great work as well in this whole topic house. So talk about the motivation behind this. Give our listeners an overview of what the book is, why you wrote it, and we'll go from there. 
Yeah, well, you know, Michael, as an author, you always think about your last chapter. You think about how can I leave the reader with something that's really going to stick with them, something's going to impact them. You know, God is the master author. He's the master storyteller. And I think he did the same thing. Uh, God had Mm. one final book to give his church. What would he say? And yet he gave us a book that is 95% prophetic when you look at the content. But as you look at Revelation, as I went through Revelation, I've gone through it many, many times, I began to see more than just end times events coming out of this book. I began to see the actual attributes of God Hmm. really rising out of these prophecies. And so I just did a study of Revelation and outlined 13 beautiful attributes of our great God that come out. And so I just tell people, it turns out that God didn't just want us to know about the future in his last book that he ever wrote. He wanted us to know about himself so that we can encounter him, engage him, grow close to him. And so Revelation ends up being really, oddly enough, sort of a devotional book as well. We find many pastors will teach the first seven chapters. They'll gladly go through the churches, but then they kind of fall off the cliff and go, well, that prophecy stuff's kind of hard to address. And again, being somewhat of a subject matter expert, how have you encountered that, encouraged pastors, teachers, Bible classes, maybe Sunday school authors, teachers, to say, look, there's more here than just Daniel, Ezekiel, and the prophetic aspects of this book? Yeah. One of the things I tell folks is that you know when you get into prophetic literature, and especially Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, things that on the surface— don't really make much sense, to be honest. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, there's low-hanging fruit on the trees that everybody can get, whether they're kids or adults, you know, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know, things like that that anyone can understand. But other scriptures, as you know, just require a lot more in-depth study. And that's why they call it Bible study. And a lot of Christians don't want to do the time that it takes to uncover the riches that are already there. We just have to do some study. And, you know, again, we're separated from the scriptures by great time, by context, by cultural values, by languages, just people groups. I mean, so many things, we have to cross those bridges to get into that time. But once we do the study, all of a sudden we discover that really the any average Christian can understand Bible prophecy and revelation. But it does require maybe a little bit of guiding through the initial parts to kind of get them going, make sure they don't get off road and kind of miss the main points. Mm-hmm. But uh, like anything else, it just requires a little bit more study. And so that's what I help people do is just help them go through revelation, uncover these truths, one truth at a time, help them see the big picture. And then in the end, they go, wow, this wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Well, your, yeah. to your point about reading and studying, and this has been somewhat of a I get onerier and onerier the older I get, but the lack of just basic reading skills, I love the technology, I use it all, but you can't study your Bible on an iPhone. You know, you can, mm-hmm. the tablet is a little better, computers a little better, but you need some books and a pen and a pad and you, and it's just such a change in cultural aspects, but anyway, I'm off off topic mm-hmm. here. Let's talk about some of these attributes. One of the things that's been intriguing to me in my own study and on occasions when I would do a pastor's workshop, I'd say, when you're studying a passage, and you and I were trained in a certain hermeneutic, so I was a verse-by-verse guy, basically. Mm-hmm. And some passages, you beat your head against the wall. You do your exegesis, you do your word study, and you lean back and go, okay, Lord, what am I doing to these poor people, as Hendricks would say? Mm-hmm. And then you step back, <laughs> and I, I don't know where to go with this. The question that I would always ask myself is, Michael, what is the attribute of God in this passage 
that is clear. And you can always come back to, if nothing else, there's something about God. And I love the fact that you mentioned that and you said, okay, what are the attributes? And I want to start out with your second chapter, the unfamiliar Jesus. What's this attribute you're looking at? Well, that that's a real eye-opening uh, chapter there in, in passage uh, in Revelation chapter one, because you know John gets this vision of the glorified, exalted Christ. And this is the Christ you don't really hear preached a lot about. We tend to look back at Jesus and his earthly life, and, and he's walking around in sandals and holding babies in his lap and you know doing miracles and stuff. And all of that, that's really true, obviously, his resurrection and that type of thing. But now, who is he now? Who do we see Christ as now? So John gets this vision of Jesus and Wow, he's got this hair that's that's white like wool. He's got his eyes burning, blazing fire. Mm-hmm. His feet are burnished bronze. He's wearing this robe down to the ground. His voice is like the sound of a mighty ocean crashing against the shore. And when John sees this glory that is with Christ and that is Christ, Bible says he falls at his feet as a like dead, a dead man. man. I love and that verse. Yeah. Essentially, his whole central nervous system just shut down yeah, yeah. at the trauma, as R.C. Sproul used to say, the trauma of holiness and encountering Christ. And you know, these people that bump their heads and claim they go to heaven for a few hours and come back, they never describe this Christ. You know, <laughs> it's always it's always you know the Jesus they remember from the Gospels. You know, but I love what what Jesus does. He places his hand upon John and says, "John, don't be afraid." Yeah. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I was dead. I'm alive. And that must have given great comfort to John to know that here I am. I'm exiled in this island of Patmos. I'm in my 90s. I've been boiled alive in oil. I've lived my whole life for you. Is it worth it? Jesus, yeah. tell me everything I've done for you is worth it. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm real. I'm alive. And I am glorified. And so must have been a great comfort to John. I think he needed that uh, at that point in his life as well. I love that you bring that verse out. I've often joked about the reason part of the eternality scheme is that every time we see Jesus, we're going to fall on our face like dead men. <laughs> He's going to pick us up and brush us off say, I took care of that. <laughs> right. The next time, we're going to fall yeah. on our face. Okay, got to pick him up again. Yeah. Sorry, bad joke. But most <laughs> most theology jokes are bad jokes. What, what is the merit for a person to understand some of these attributes. Okay, I see God in a more powerful way, and I want to get to the wrath aspect of God as well. What's a benefit for the Christian when he goes, okay, this unfamiliar Jesus in this chapter, why is that important for me to see this? Now, you articulated John's need of encouragement, perhaps. What about you and me? I think it's important for us to calibrate our minds to what Scripture says about who God is. And the reason why is because we're living in an age where people generally make up their own truth. Boy. They're making up their own reality. And uh, here, and, you know, we get into the church, and let's not be naive. I mean, they're living in the world 99% of the time out there, and they're being influenced by the thought patterns, the narratives, the things that are going on in the world, the popular belief systems and that type of thing, Michael. And, you know, for me, I, I think as Christians, we need to regularly, like taking a bath, and we need to renew our minds, as mm. Romans 12, 2 says, with the Word of God, the washing of that water, so that we can see God for who He really is. And when that happens, there's an impact. I mean, that I've never encountered 
anything in scripture that tells me who God is without having some sort of impact on my life, mm-hmm. change my thinking, change my behavior, change the way that I pray. I mean, there's so many things that impact our lives and seeing who God is, as A.W. Tozer famously said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. Mm-hmm. And because that that really impacts and informs everything else we do. Well, let, let me take a, a little bit of a turn on that point because I can think of some friends who are apathetic in their faith, friends who are tired in their faith. They've lived a long time. They've been faithful. And it's not that they're living in sin or anger. Well, I can't say that for sure, but but apathy and anger and passivity uh, toward the word. Yeah, I studied it for years. Yeah, you know, my kids, some of them are doing well. So when you're studying an attribute, and again, back to John's reference and, and then what you just articulated, when you're exposed to it, it impacts Jeff's heart and mind and soul. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people you and I know that aren't impacted by it. They're, and they're good Christians, but they're just, they don't care anymore. Well, and that's the exact reason why Jesus had John pen Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, because they were in the same boat. Uh, they were asleep. Church at Sardis was asleep. Jesus said, wake up. They were lethargic. Church at Laodicea, Jesus said, mm-hmm. you know, get hot or lukewarm. cold, but don't be lukewarm. Uh, he talked all those churches. Some of them had lost their doctrinal purity, and he said, get back. But he told all of them, remember where you've come from mm-hmm. and and get your life right to me. Come back to me. Let me inside my own church again. And, and Christ did promise those churches, if you do not, I will come and make war with you. I will come and discipline you. And so I think part of that uh, that discipline that a lot of people are experiencing is just a continued, just blasé feeling about God. But when we encounter Jesus in the Word, and I would say read those chapters, chapters 2 and 3, and say, hey, do I see myself yeah. in there? What is Jesus saying to me I need to do in order to recapture that first love as the Ephesian church had lost? Mm -hmm. And so that's why the Word of God is just so amazing, because no matter what we're facing, we run straight into God and straight into who He is when we encounter those verses. So that's, I think, what the church needs today is to go back to Revelation 2 and 3. I have for many, many years said God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. And that three-legged stool, if you're not in the Word, if you're not submitting to the Spirit's mm-hmm. work in your life, and if you're not around a community of believers who will sharpen you, you won't grow. You'll be apathetic. You'll get in the weeds. It'll be a cliche thing. But for me, and maybe that is more telling about Michael Easley's problems in life, but you know, God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, that's what's kept me on track. And interestingly, at different parts of my Christian life, they have different weight at times, mm-hmm. it's the word is just you know hitting me over the side of the head. Other times, it's am I going to submit to the Holy Spirit's control of my life, or am I going to do it myself? Or times when I might be you know post surgery and a lot of pain or whatever, it's God's people that come around and kind of carry you. And so, I don't know if you've thought about that in the way you would explain it to people, but when I think about a book like this and how we're trying to encourage the body to keep growing, plant a tree today, keep growing. It just seems, again, my culture, you know, I'm 66, my peer, they're on the the runway short, and I'm glad you're reaching younger kids, but I fear for this older generation that they kind of lean in back, Jeff. Yeah, that's, and that's a great danger. I remember our, our professor, Howard Hendricks, used to say, you know, don't fear that you won't, uh, what do you say, don't fear that you won't have live life, fear that you'll miss life, you know, yeah. essentially what he would say. He's just like, fear of leading a mediocre life because— 
You know, J. Oswald Chambers uh, famously said, when we shall see him, that is Christ, we will wonder that we could have disobeyed him. Uh, wow. The idea is that, that God is so amazing, so beautiful, and that's what he brings out in Revelation. When we see the God of Revelation, we want to be about the Father's work all the way to the finish. Like Paul said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course. We want to finish strong. And I've often told people, you know, I want to be that Christian that's coming around third base, kicking up dust, uh, <laughs> screaming and, and yelling and, and running for home. I want to, <laughs> I want to come through the finish line strong. And you know, by God's grace, hopefully I will. But th- that's really the encouragement: is that you need to look forward, have that kind of tombstone living where you look at the end of your life and look back and go, "What do I really want to to do and and to say about my life when it's all said and done?" And mm-hmm. and then what do I need to do in order to make that happen? Don't give up. As 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says that always abounding of the work of the Lord because everything we do for God counts. Matters. And so we don't want to miss that. Let's talk a little bit about God's wrath. And you made a comment earlier about, you know, I'm not precise on your quote, but that how people make God in their own image. I have said for many years, uh, God made man in his image and man's been making God in their image ever since. A little bit better than that, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. And my wife yeah. plays pickleball with a bunch of neighbors, and there was this side you know, court discussion about someone said, I can never believe in a God who. And it always strikes me how we have, this is who God is. And one of the problems universally for people, universally but broadly, they, you know, this idea that God is a God of vengeance and wrath, how can that be fair? How can that be right, Jeff? Yeah, people typically look at the Old Testament and say, well, that's the God of wrath because they think about the flood. Genocide, yeah. Drowning, mm-hmm. yeah, genocide, drowning Pharaoh's army and all that stuff. They say, well, Jesus was the gentle version of God. And, you know, so he's, <laughs> he's kind of the counter, he counterbalances that God of the Old Testament kind of thing. But, you know, you look at Jesus and the New Testament, you see him, uh, you know, turning over tables with a whip and, you know, whipping these tables over and uh, being greatly angry. And then, again, the book of Revelation, when Christ returns at his second coming, the Bible gives us this verbal pictorial panorama of what he does to the armies that have gathered there at Armageddon. It's a brutal, brutal slaughter. But it really speaks to the righteous character of God. And I tell people, you know, that struggle with that, I say, look, you want God to be righteous. You want him to be wrathful because you want him to do away with all the evil. You know, mm-hmm. think about the worst evil that you can think of right now. This movie's playing right now that with Jim Caviezel about sex trafficking of young children. It's like, don't you want God to do away with that one day? That's part of that evil. So God has to be wrathful. And also, I think, Michael, that when people struggle with that, as, as we all have at certain points in our Christian lives, is that we forget how sinful and deserving of God's wrath we all are. Whether it be an Adolf Hitler or a religious person who's a very good person on the outside, we all deserve God's wrath. We're born in sin, and and none of us really seeks God by ourselves. So I think when we look at God's wrath, we see him pouring out on planet Earth. What we forget is that God has waited to do this for thousands and thousands of years, mm-hmm. and he's given people chance after chance after chance. But every sin in the universe has to be punished, either on the cross with Christ or in eternity away from God. So yeah, that chapter 6 through 18 are some really tough chapters to wade through, but we do get a sense, even in that, of how good God is, but more than that, just the idea that God is going to bring all evil to an end, and he's going to cause righteousness to reign. 
it was in college when I think I was confronted with, you know, who are you, old man, who answers back to God mm-hmm. in Romans mm-hmm. 9. And we yeah. get hung yeah. up on God being fair. And uh, I love your point. You know, we all deserve hell. And there's none righteous, no, not one. And yet we have this twisted self-righteousness that says, well, that's not fair or that's not right. Yeah. Or why would God let a child die of AIDS? Or why would God allow genocide? And, no, God's not allowing any of that. The sin nature and evil and sinful people do these things. But it's hard to explain to a person. Talk to me a little bit about, and I know you deal with this both as a pastor and when you're in your former life and in conferences, people like to read the tea leaves. And when Walford was talking about Gog and Magog being Russia, I still remember that. He was pretty convinced it was Russia. Well, here we are with Russia and Ukraine and France, and we're all scratching our head, and India, and we look at these massive population bases compared to what America's 3% of the global population, Mm -hmm. maybe four. And yet we're pretty proud of our observation of the world. And yet in God's big picture of what he's doing in this storyline, what we call it, how do we prevent from drawing conclusions that, okay, you know, they are aligning, but also being wise going, this could be end time stuff. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, I compare it sometimes to a a picture on a screen that's pixelated, but then it comes into focus mm. over time. Or, or like you're driving down the highway and you see a sign in the distance, you can't really read it yet. But the closer you get to the actual sign, the more clear the sign becomes to you. And you can say, oh, that's definitely this. You know, Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24 that during this time we call the tribulation period, there'll be these birth pangs of these yes. signs that'll happen in the end times. And I don't obviously think we're there yet, but I think what we are experiencing are what doctors call Braxton Hicks contractions. Yeah. And uh, these Braxton Hicks contractions happen to women who are actually pregnant. And they feel like the real thing, but it's not actually the fulfillment of the baby coming at the moment. Doctors will send you home from the hospital, but it only happens to women who are in their second and third trimester. So the things that we're seeing, things like Russia moving south, which is exactly what Scripture says that it will do in the latter days, uh, Israel and the conflicts around Israel, globalism, the rise of one world government, the whole idea of technology providing opportunity for everyone to participate in the digital economy, and you can't buy or sell the European Union unless you do. All these things are these pixelating photographs, I think, prophetically coming together. We're obviously not fulfilling them right now, but I think we can say with a certain degree of surety and assurance that we do see them coming together. Now, where the baby is in the formation of this, we can't actually say. You know, are we in the first trimester or the last trimester? I don't think we need, can be specific about that. And I think that's where people kind of get off road a little bit. They try to say, well, it's going to happen tomorrow or, or this is the fulfillment. Yeah. So we have to be cautious. We have to be a very respectful with God's word, not jump ahead of God's prophetic plan, but certainly not ignore it like the Pharisees did when they missed the sign of Jesus being before them. So, so yeah, just being very respectful and cautious and reverent with the word, but yet not you know avoiding the whole topic together. Had we lived in 1941 and lived through 47, 49, 50, we, have, we would have had to believe, if you and I were pastoring churches in those years, the temptation to call Hitler the Antichrist, the temptation to see these global forces aligning against you know one another, to me that's been, in the short life of America, that's been unparalleled. Are we in a similar theme today? 
Well, again, I think that's why we have to be cautious because like, for example, with Hitler, you, you look at Hitler to go, well, here's a guy who did exactly what the Antichrist wants to do. He wants to kill all the Jews. He wants to rule the world. He wants people to worship him. And he wants to set up a thousand-year kingdom, a thousand-year Reich. That sounds pretty similar to yeah. what Christ wants to do. It seemed like all of those signs were kind of converging together. However, reading the rest of Scripture, we saw that, well, that there wasn't an Israel, and Israel has to be a, a nation again for the Antichrist to come on the scene. There was no temple for Antichrist to invade and commit the abomination of desolation. He wasn't killed with the wound of the sword and came back to life, that type of thing. There wasn't a mark of the beast. It's like people say, well, you know, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck and all that, it must be a duck. Well, it's not a duck yet. <laughs> We're hearing quacking sounds, but we don't know where the duck is exactly. Scripture tells us that we won't know who the Antichrist is because I believe we'll be taken in the rapture before that. But but again, I mean, we have to look at all of the Scripture and say, are all these boxes being checked? And if just a couple of them are being checked, I mean, yeah, you can say, well, this person is Antichrist-like. Yeah. yeah, it's intriguing and it's interesting, but let's not run ahead of the train and let's let God play out his prophetic narrative and we, we can watch it happen as it does. Some other attributes in your book. Uh, let, let me say, let me ask you this, this way, one that surprised you most. I think the, the one, it wasn't so much of a surprise, but it was a comfort. Talking about the God who is gracious. Because when you think about tribulation, revelation, judgments, you don't typically think of God's grace during this time. But Scripture tells us in Revelation 7, there's going to be the greatest revival in human history will take place during this tribulation period where John looks out, he sees so many people coming to Jesus in the tribulation. And I think it's primarily the first half of the tribulation. He can't even count them all. So he just picks the highest word in the Greek language, or highest number rather in the Greek language, and just multiplies it by itself. Kind of like saying it's a gazillion times a gazillion people. Uh. And uh, so God's grace is just poured out through the preaching of the gospel and through people, I think, realizing that you know they missed their opportunity during the church age to come to Christ. But it's a great thing. It says from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people group, ethnicity on the planet, there are people represented in that. So that, to me just tells me when people you know lay down the the judgment card just to say you know what but even during that god is still saying the door to the ark is open you can still come to me but there will come a time that the door that door will be closed so but these people will pay for their uh, faith uh, the bible says with their lives so it'll be a very difficult time to be a christian but uh, it's just uh, encouraging to me to know that god's grace is still in operation during that time so for folks that maybe haven't studied much about prophecy and timelines, give us uh, your take on this timeline. We talk about pre-mill, pre-trib, rapture. Give us Jeff Kinley's primer for how these events unfold and, and what they need to understand about this idea of biblical prophecy. Yeah, well, the way I understand Scripture for my study, Michael, I, I see that we're now basically in the church age. The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost and inaugurated the church age and been going on for some 2,000 years. At some point, the church age is going to end, and I believe that ending comes at the rapture of the church, which is Christ's promise to come back and take his bride up to heaven to be in the Father's house before he unleashes uh, God's wrath on the planet. After the rapture, there'll be a inauguration of the uh, tribulation period, 
uh, which will be a signing of a peace treaty by a man that we will know as Antichrist, or the Scripture calls him Antichrist, and that's Daniel 9, uh, 26 and 27. And then seven years will pass where God will pour out his judgments, the seal, trumpet, bold judgments during that time. Antichrist will rise to power. He'll rule a one-world government. At some point, he'll die, come back from the dead, proclaim himself to be God, enter the rebuilt Jewish temple, and commit the abomination of desolation, and then command the whole world to worship him, which Revelation 13 says they will. And then at the end of that seven-year period, the Bible says Christ will come back on a white horse. It says the armies of heaven, including the the saints, the church, will come with him on white horses. We'll come back to Armageddon. Uh, Jesus will uh, slaughter his enemies. He'll set up a a thousand-year kingdom on the earth. And then at the end of that time, he'll create a new heavens and a new earth. And so that's just kind of in a quick yeah, nutshell uh, the way I see it. And so I see the rapture is taking place before God pours out his wrath because Christ suffered God's wrath on the cross for us. So I don't think God's going to pour out his wrath on his bride again. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of a general. Now there are different views, yeah. you know, w- uh, whether it's pre-mid or post or pre-mill or ah-mill, that kind of thing. So there's a general disagreement among believers, but gentle. that's kind of the general timeline. <laughs> your, your grace is gentle. Yeah. <laughs> well, depending, I was going to ask. who you talk to. <laughs> I, I know, yeah, I know this is it's kind of a ludicrous question, but you're, you're the expert. So I get to ask the question, why is there so much acrimony towards those who, who hold an ah-mill or don't believe in a rapture or... You and I would be on the same timeline, no pun intended, on what you just sketched out. Yet there's so much acrimony and, I mean, it's disdain from some of our brothers in Christ. What do you think motivates that? I think a couple things. From from my perspective and from my experience, I have not seen that type of hatred from the pre-mill, pre-trib camp only because most of the people who believe that are fairly confident in what they believe. And so they don't mm. really feel a need to... Now, they do argue the the points, but I don't see that hatred. But I do feel the hatred coming yeah. back towards oh, yeah. those viewpoints from people who are... If they're a mid-trib, they believe that the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation. They will come back at a pre-trib view in, in a, sometimes a very hateful... In fact, that's the most... I would say vitriol emails that I get are huh. people that are attacking me based upon that pre-mill, pre-trib view. Interesting. In fact, I, I, I was at a church in uh, Chattanooga, a fairly large church, uh, preaching on the rapture. pastor asked me to, so I did. And I was going through, well, here's some of the objections that people have to a pre-trib rapture. And in the middle of those objections, a man stands up in the audience and began screaming and shouting at me, you know, because of my view. And, you know, after a few minutes of very awkwardness, he was escorted out. And I thought, wait a minute, he's giving an objection to the rapture while I'm telling people about objections to the rapture. And I thought, well, you've just become my new sermon illustration you know, wow. for, for this thing. But but I do, I get a lot of really kind of hateful comments. And my, my pushback on that is just say, look, study the scripture for yourself. For me, it's not a breaking of fellowship kind of issue. I mean, I, I've known many people that were more in the Reformed camp of, yep. of eschatology and believe in more of an ah-mill position. And, but you know what? On the attributes of God, we agree. And on the inerrancy of the scriptures, we agree. And the deity of Christ, we agree. And how you come to faith, we agree. So I'm okay with that. But, you know, I tell them, at least read, at least study it for yourself and don't just accept it. But uh, for some reason, I think they want to be, those people want to be right. I think among a lot of Christians, you just want to get it right, you know, with God's Mm -hmm. Word. And so because they think that you're getting it wrong, meaning me and you, we're getting it wrong, they feel like they have an obligation to correct. 
And sometimes that correction comes with a little more force than other times. I was speaking in a city years ago and was with the Family Life Marriage Conferences that Cindy and I were part of for many years, 15 years. And they had these host couples that organized the thing. And so you meet with them and rightfully thank them because they did all the you know recruitment and enlistment and advertising locally for churches and saying, we're going to hold this conference and you should bring a group from your church. And I mean, these are great lay folks who spend a lot of time. And the lead guy on this happened to be a physician. And he came in, and this is uh, Dr. So-and-so. And I shook his hand and said, man, thanks so much for all you've done. It's a great turnout for the conference. And he says to me, you went to Dallas? And I went, yes, sir. And he goes, are you a dispensationalist? <laughs> I said, well, I'm a reformed dispensationalist. He goes, what does that mean? And he stormed off. <laughs> Right, right. And that's one of about 10 I could tell. But I was, I was oh, struck yeah. with the vitriol, and it was like mm. I thought we were you know, brothers in Christ, and we do disagree yeah. on eschatology. But mm-hmm. there are segments, I would say large segments, of those camps that disfellowship us. I mean, I had a guy basically yeah. tell me I was a heretic because oh, yeah. I didn't hold to the, quote, traditional Reformed view, which is very difficult right. to nail down what that actually means. But mm-hmm. anyway, <laughs> back to God's grand finale. <laughs> Sorry for the discursus here. Um, oh, that's great. So when when you encounter, let me talk, ask you about young kids. Why are young kids interested in end times? And you just talk to 200 kids. What questions do they ask? What do you see in their hearts and minds that are going, what's going to happen? Yeah, well, part of it is is that because they haven't been raised in a tradition that has taught them about it it's it's new truth huh. to them you know as a baby christian even as a veteran christian you know an old i should say old christian you know with with you and i we're kind of in the older we're camp old. Yeah. but we're we're getting old old isn't as old as it used to be I, it don't matter though, you know it's what it is <laughs> but i mean even now i mean you know you know this you read your bible and you go what's i've read that a hundred times exactly. i've never seen that never you know? saw so, i mean we're always learning that joy of discovery that uh, hendrix used to talk about but yeah these young kids this is the first they're hearing you mean there's going to be a, a kingdom you you mean Jesus is going to come back on a white horse? We're going to be with him? Are you kidding me? What is the Antichrist? What's he going to be like? What about babies when the rapture yeah. comes? A woman is pregnant. What happens to that baby? I mean, they're asking all these great questions. And, you know, we sometimes uh, short sell young people by trying to dumb down theology and doctrine to them. But I was a youth pastor for over 20 years. I found that every single piece of doctrine that an adult could handle, a teenager could handle yes. as well. But we're, you know, often we just don't give it to them. But yeah, they're salivating. I mean, they want to hear about this thing. And the more you tell them, the more they want to know. So I think it drives them back to the scripture and to, you know, to do some study and to, you know, have conversations with their youth leaders and youth pastor and that kind of thing. So it really is kind of a healthy thing to do. But yeah, they're just hungry and they want to know. And so when you give them God's word, Holy Spirit within them strikes that spark and they grow. You need to find out more about Jeff and we'll have information as always in the show notes. But Jeff has a podcast that we want you to know about. We've talked to Jeff before about the Prophecy Pros, and that's a very helpful resource about some of these issues that Jeff just walked over very quickly in the timelines. But Vintage Truth, the weekly television program called Jeff Kinley Live, and as always, use your search engine and put Jeff's name in there. But again, we'll have all the information in the show notes. The newest book is one you want to pick up, God's Grand Finale, and you can buy it anywhere you purchase books online from Harvest House. Jeff, as always, thanks for your time. It's a joy to see you and exciting to see how God's using you and your faithfulness toward his word. 
Michael, thank you so much, brother. Always a pleasure. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 